Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock Jock, Steve Price. I don't like Shock Jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Rita Panahi describes herself as a migrant woman of colour. Her critics target her as an arch-conservative with rabid views, and she loves the debate. From a frightened child at a school in Iran to a national newspaper and TV star, Rita Panahi is our latest guest on the record in profile. The left love to redefine words. Racist, fascist, bigot, sexist. These words have been misused and overused so much they have lost all meaning. Now the left are redefining what peaceful means. Any protest that has seen multiple murders, bashings, widespread looting and destruction of property is not peaceful. Today we talk to the ethnic mother of one who has a regular column in Australia's biggest selling newspaper, The Herald Sun. Uh, She's on Sky TV, a regular program. She's a regular on the nation's most popular radio networks, but perhaps... And I'll ask her about this. Just as importantly, she was an early adopter of social media. She's got a massive following of nearly 210,000 followers on Twitter and a regular presence on Instagram. Rita Panahi, uh, I happen to be one of your Twitter followers. Good day. How are you? Um, I'm okay. Great to be with you, Steve. Um, I wasn't as early as you would think. I I was a bit of a Twitter skeptic. Um, I was like, sort of full goes on there and, you know, what sort of twits would waste their time on that platform. Um, so I joined quite early, but I didn't actually start using the platform in earnest for, for quite a while. Um, but as you know, I'm now a full-blown addict. I'm on there day and night. I'll Dinner parties, I'll be tweeting under the table. Um, just, yeah, terrible manners all around. 210,000 followers is substantial. And I note that... And they're engaged followers. Yes, they, that's they, right. And you know, I, I noticed... people have a lot of followers and they have no engagement, but my followers really, uh, they're in there and they're interested. And I do note that one of those followers happens to be a lawyer working in the Trump White House. That must have been good for your ego to find that out. Oh, Jenna, we had her on Outsiders. She was fantastic. And it was through Twitter that I was able to send her a direct message because sometimes it would be hard to... Um, get messages directly to, to the person you're interested in having on the program. So it has been actually really useful in that way when you've got people, high-profile people that you're interested in talking to and, and wanting to have on a program where you can just send them a direct message um, and get to them. You bypass all their agents and producers and assistants and you get to the person, the decision maker. That's, that's always very useful. How do you deal with the blowback? Because, I mean, I use Twitter. I don't have anywhere near the following that you do and I don't do it as regularly as you do. And I try to engage and have a debate rather than just put, you know, tips in there about stuff. How do you deal with the blowback? Because it can be a bit of a sewer. Oh, it's an absolute sewer. And I think with Twitter, you've got to Appreciate what it is. It leans a certain way. The platform is very much a left-winging platform. The Twitter <laughs> hierarchy is very much left-wing. You know, they will uh, punish and ban conservatives for infractions that prominent lefties get get away with routinely. So there's also, I mean, and, you know, Twitter's left-wing bias has been documented and, and talked about extensively. But if you appreciate that, if you appreciate that it actually isn't, uh, representative of the wider population. If Twitter was representative, the Greens would be in power in Australia. 
um, you know, you and I would probably be in prison and <laughs> the country would be some socialist utopia, you know. It's not representative, but it is hugely important because what you see on Twitter ends up in the mainstream media. Yeah, it's a great it's debate everybody. how this has all changed. And, look, mm. you only, only need to look at uh, what we are talking about, Donald Trump. You only need to look at the way that Donald Trump uses Twitter. Oh, he's, yeah, he's been really quite brilliant with it and, and it's been interesting just recently seeing the platform trying to, um, I guess, reduce his impact. They've tried to fact-check a couple of his tweets. Well, the first fact-check went badly wrong. It's linked to a CNN fact-check that had all sorts of actual um, errors in it. That's not, never ideal. And just um, last thing I saw was he posted up this obvious parody video couple of toddlers hugging each other. It was poking fun at CNN for being fake news for misrepresenting stuff. And not only did they put a warning on it saying it's manipulated media, then they uh, removed the video altogether because of a copyright infringement. Now, just about every video you see on Twitter has got some sort of copyright issue and it's never enforced, but they've chosen now to, to target Trump in that way. And I think it's a dangerous game they're playing because... These platforms enjoy all sorts of protections because they say we're not publishers. We're platforms where we, we, we don't edit, editorialise. Edit, that's the English as a second language, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, uh, and if they are actually exerting editorial control, um, then they're no longer platforms, they're pl- publishers, and that comes with all sorts of other ramifications. So um, it's just a very fascinating period in, in that world. It's a fascinating period in America, full stop, with an election, of course, Absolutely. due at the end of the year. Uh, we're going to get into your background and, and where you came from and where you come from. But you're an American born in Arkansas. When people ask you where you come from, what do you say? Um, if I'm overseas and someone says where you come from, I always say it's Australia because that's where I come from. I'm Australian. I live in Australia. Um, if people ask in Australia, then I give a more in-depth answer, I guess, um, um, and so, yeah, both my parents were born in Iran. Um, so, so I see I, myself as Australian and American. I'm also got the Persian heritage there. So, it's a yeah, it can be a complicated answer depending on <laughs> how much information people are after. But if I'm overseas, the answer is Australia. So you were actually born in Arkansas because your dad, who, as you said, your mum and dad are Iranian, they were in America and he was studying, I think, uh, to be, was it an engineer at university in Arkansas? And your mum was working as a a midwife. So uh, have you ever been back to to Arkansas? I actually have never been to Arkansas, back to Arkansas. I really want to. I know it's crazy. Because I always end up in, you know, California or <laughs> I always end up in the tourist hotspots when I go back. But the next trip, I'm definitely, because um, I really want to do a Texas road trip and Arkansas is just across the border. So I want to um, go back to Pine Bluff. But I tell you, last time I think I was going to the States, or maybe it was the time before that, I Googled Pine Bluff and the first story that came up was America's murder capital. And so that wasn't exactly <laughs> advertising to me to get over there as soon as possible. So, yeah, I think at that point, per capita, they had one of the highest, or if not the highest, murder rate um, from memory. Um, uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I think Pine Bluff's got some gang issues in certain, certain areas. Um, but hopefully that's all quiet down. That was quite a few years ago. Uh, 
but yeah, I, I say I identify as Texan now, Steve. I've, I've decided I'm, I'm going to identify. Can't do that. Can identify? Yes, you can. If you can identify as, you know, a bloody unicorn or a pixie or whatever else, I'm going to identify as a Texan. Um, and um, that's where I want to, at some point, spend um, at least a few years. I'd like to live there for a couple of years and see if it's, if it's for me. Um, I don't know. I've, I've really? Just really, yeah, I've always. I should say always, but for for a long time, I've really um, been attracted to that idea to, to go there and, and just see if it's um, it's for me. I've always loved being in the states, and Texas is such a thriving place. It's, it's just booming, and I think it'd just be an exciting place to be for. I think Donald Trump wins time. again. Oh, that's such a hard question, Steve. Um, my gut still says yes. But I think, you know, everything has been thrown into turmoil with things out of his control, particularly the recessions caused by coronavirus. I mean, that was his biggest asset, a booming, booming economy, record low unemployment rate, or lowest in more than 50 years. Um, and, you know, all those economic factors were just, I think, I think his biggest asset. Um, and now that's in disarray. They've had tens of millions unemployed during this uh, recession and Biden has basically been able to (laughs) benefit from hiding in his uh, house. But that's probably Donald Trump's biggest advantage, that the other side have got a a hopeless candidate uh, even even worse than last time with Hillary Clinton. Joe Biden, surely Americans are not going to elect him. Well, I reckon he's more likable than Hillary is. I think Hillary was just awful in so many different ways. But uh, he's hidden from view, and that is fantastic for the Democrats because people aren't seeing Biden struggling to finish a coherent sentence. And every now and then he does this softball interview with some, uh, you know, Democratic uh, propaganda arm, you know, CNN or MSNBC, one of those. And he still struggles through it. He's, he's got no tough questions to deal with, and he still really struggles. So I don't know how he's going to cope in the debates, but will this pandemic mean that he can dodge the debates? He can say, you know, I'm not going to partake in them. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, that would, I think, be the, the Republicans' greatest fear, that he will somehow be able to uh, conduct this entire campaign from the safety of his basement and basically not be around and um, not have people to see his, his decline because, my gosh, he says some bizarre things. He certainly he has does. been for a couple of years, for a couple of years at least. You're yeah. a, um, a proud Melbourneian now, uh, but interestingly you say you'd like to go and live in Texas, but you don't say you'd like to go and live in Iran for obvious reasons. Oh, yeah, I'd be killed. That'd be number one reason. That's <laughs> a pretty good that reason. That is a very good reason. Well, see, I just can't ever go back. Like, I would love, love, love to go back, pack my son there, who's obviously never been there. He's Australian born. Um, not only his family, but all the historic sites. Like, it would be a dream, but it would be insane. If, you know, I mean, if I stepped foot in that country, given the things I have written about their regime and things I've said, uh, I'd be locked up and gone. Immediately, really? Um, oh, absolutely! They lock up people who've actually never said anything about the regime. There's uh, people who've, who've um, dual citizens who go back and get accused of being a spy or being, you know, working against the 
the government and they, they're locked away. What about the poor academic, the Melbourne academic, um, Kyla Gilbert Moore, I think her name is, um, 10-year sentence she's caught and she's in solitary confinement in Evan Prison for, <laughs> I think, most of the sentence. Kylie Moore Gilbert, I should say, I think I've mixed up her surname. Um, and she's never said anything from what I understand negative about the regime. I've written honestly about just what a brutal, backward um, Islamist dictatorship it is. Um, so, you know, even I wouldn't have any sympathy for me if I went back and got chucked in prison because you should know better. You know, you know, well, you um, went there, I think you went there in 1979 with your parents. Can you remember anything about that early time there oh, before yeah. the revolution? Oh, absolutely. Like, I... Um, my earliest, earliest memories are um, where we lived near the beach or right, right near the beach. Um, and so, yeah, those memories are really quite lovely. Um, probably the country was in a fair bit of t- turmoil, but obviously as a very, very young child, I didn't see any of that, you know. So my earliest memories were sort of four years old or three, three or four years old are just all beachy memories and, and, and good times. And then I've got memories that are a bit more dark of um, being in Tehran and being really fearful of um, being caught up um, because people were just being killed. and um, People were just disappearing know. from home, not to be Absolutely. seen again. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, that happened to, to, to family friends. It happened to family members where, you know, it, 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 it was terrifying. And particularly for my my family, my mum was a, um, a a midwife at a hospital that the royal family um, used. So, and whenever they visited the, the, the hospital, she'd be the one who, because she was quite glamorous, she'd be the one who would show them around. And, so there was you know, pictures of her interacting with yeah, the royal family, with the Shah's family. Absolutely. There were pictures of her and that's what um, my parents were most fearful of. It was one that certain people they knew had been caught up, arrested, um, and, you know, that guilt by association is an issue. But the other one was really the, the one that, thought, you know, but you could get killed for that on the spot. You know, there's no trial, there's no plea to your case. <laughs> You're, at that time, it was um, crazy. So, so, yeah, I remember them burning all these photos and trying to burn any... Um, anything they had, but, you know, these photos, they're, they're, they're members of the royal family, so they wouldn't be the only ones that would have them. So that, that's the fear, that, that um, something as, as harmless or minor as that could end your life. Um, uh, so, yeah, that wasn't as fun, and I remember the war as well, but it, I think I was quite lucky. I, I wasn't really traumatised by that, if, if, if I experienced what I experienced then now as an adult, it, it would have been traumatising, but I think as, as a youngster, you've just got that natural resilience and, and you don't appreciate Were your mum and dad how afraid? dangerous it is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, you have bomb sirens, and you, you know, you, you, you're brushing off... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it wasn't... He's um, sort of living, hoping you don't hear a knock on the door, that sort of thing? Um, yeah, I don't remember... Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't remember that memory, but I remember being in the car like, in the early hours, being too scared to go in the house. 
like that's a, a memory that's quite strong where um, we were near the near the house, could see the house, but were worried there were people there or, and, and there was just a fear that it was like, that, that I remember because I was like, why can't we go in? Why can't we go sleep? And, uh, and they, they didn't um, feel safe going because, I mean, you also don't know, you know, what if someone who doesn't like you, a neighbour drops you in because they know there's a picture of you with with, with the monarch or with so yeah, it would be a terrifying time. Uh, you do tell a story about being at school and having to mouth the words death to America. That must have been something that stuck with you. Oh, absolutely. That was something that happened regularly or something you did at assembly. So so you got to um, school and sang a song about killing Americans or the death to... Well, it was more a chant. It wasn't a song. <laughs> right. You'd say, marriage bad on retire, which means, you know, death to America. Um, and I would always either not say it, I would just mouth it, or, um, you know, I would just, the bit I would yell would be the America part. So did you consciously in your head think, hang on, I was born in America, I may not remember much about it, but my father and mother treasured that country enough to go and work there, I was born there, Uh, how come I'm here wishing that the ill will is done towards America? Um. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, at no point did I not know that this was wrong. This was not okay. I absolutely loathe that because, yeah, that was, um, for me, even at that very young age, having that American passport was really significant. It was my way out. So I just knew that even if I was stuck here for the next, 10 years, 15, whatever, at what some point I could escape. So it was, it, it really, even at a very young age, it was something that was significant to me. And I remember, you know, in the first few years of school, it was something that um, mattered a great deal. And that's why I wouldn't participate in the Death to America chants and, um, and uh, the indoctrination that starts very young. Um, over there, where you're essentially taught to hate, taught to hate America, taught to hate Israel, taught to hate the West. And I think, I mean, that's kind of failed because there's so many uh, Iranians who grew up with that indoctrination who don't believe that, who, uh, who despite that brainwashing, detest their on this regime and, and, and year to be more Western. You go from living on a beach in Tehran, which, you know, under pressure. Well, not in Tehran. It was, it was a town called Shamal, which is, yeah, not there. So we were initially were there when we first moved to Iran and yep. then we were in Tehran. So um, when most of the trouble was happening, we were in, in Tehran. And uh, just a quick little, because I know that, you know, the craziest thing listen to this and we want to fact check anything. Um, I think earlier you said my mum. <laughs> yeah, I think earlier you said my mum worked as a midwife in America. She worked as a midwife in Australia and um, in, 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 in Iran. She, she, um, she wasn't um, working in America. So she was there with my dad who was getting his engineering degree. Crazies just can go so there the crazies, yeah. <laughs> They can go their hardest. So you go from there to living behind a chicken shop in suburban Melbourne 
you've obviously <laughs> spoken to your parents about why they chose Australia one and why they chose Melbourne two, which from your point of view has been a, a major blessing in disguise that they, they decided to settle here. But why Melbourne? Um, well, I had an uncle in Melbourne. He's not here in Melbourne anymore, um, but he was the one who had the chicken shop. So, um, and I think, you know, they... Has that driven your come- long, long-held uh, uh, love of food, living in a chicken shop? I, I seriously still love roast chicken so much. You'd think <laughs> you'd get sick of it, having it, you know, the smell there and having, having it there uh, every day. But no, I still seek out superior charcoal chicken and... Um, you said very regularly. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think they – I don't know if they had the long-term plan to be here, but they – I think they thought, oh, you know, they can come here and then go to the US from here, but that never happened. <laughs> they ended up staying here. Um, but, yeah, that was uh, quite a, um, a shock because, yeah, I came here and I would have been nine. Um, so that's not, not really young. I mean, nine years old. You're, you're obviously having to go to school and and my yeah. understanding is you spoke no English and suddenly you were transported from the country of your parents' birth to Australia, a place that you, you probably might have not even heard of if you hadn't had an uncle here and suddenly you get dumped in a school and uh, hang on, uh, I don't understand anything anyone's saying. No, I started at grade three some point throughout the year. I think it was fairly late in the year. Um and yeah, I understood nothing. I knew two words: uh, tea and hello. <laughs> that was the extent of it. Um, and so I think I was—I don't actually remember this, but I've been told that I freaked out day one, day one because people came, everyone came and started talking to me, and I was just overwhelmed and could not understand, and I just ran off um, out of class, <laughs> um, which would have been um, a bit of a shock to everybody, but. Uh, Yes, but I tell you, English is a simple language, which is wonderful if you come here as a child, you can learn it very quickly. And I learned it almost exclusively from Australian television. What shows? uh, The ones I remember I loved was Young Talent Time. Um, I made myself uh, learn to do the splits. I think I did myself some harm, to be honest with you, (laughs) (laughs) because all the kids on that show used to be able to do the splits. I'm like, how did they do that? So Young Talent Time and just whatever was on, you know, they weren't all Australian shows, American content, whatever content. But um, uh, I had the uh, term break, and I think that would have been a couple of weeks. And when I went back, I was far more comfortable. I thought I could understand a fair bit of what was happening, and... I reckon by, you know, in a few months I was I was fine. So you're wise, genuinely so. bilingual now. You can speak Persian and and English. Farsi, yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't speak Farsi often, um, so it often does take me a little time to to get into that groove. Um, uh, but, but yeah, it, it, I speak it, but I've got to say it's not the most useful language. You don't have like an accent, German. You don't have an accent. Well, no, I mean, I came, I would have been eight and a half, nine, I think. Yeah, I think I was, yeah, eight and a half. So uh, I think that's young enough to, to learn it with an Australian accent. But when I go overseas, um, I... Speak I'm like quite, a Texan. Well, yeah, I, do, I, I don't do this <laughs> intentionally, but whenever I'm overseas, I, I, I find myself... You know, I'll say a couple of words. I'm like, what the hell? How am I pronouncing that? I, I, I mimic the, the accent I hear 
without even knowing it. Sometimes I overcompensate and put on a real awkward accent <laughs> to say, I'm not going to bloody sound like I'm Kylie putting on a British accent. But that's why I was always sympathetic to her because, you know, she copped all that criticism that, you know, suddenly she's got a pommy accent after growing up in Australia. But some people just, it, it, it absorbs that naturally. It's, it's not a put on. It's, it's just um Yeah, I think we, we all end up doing that. So you must have done pretty well at school because <laughs> you ended up at, uh, unlike my good self at university, studying a business and finance degree. But you never actually finished it, did you? No, because I was already working in finance. I was working full time almost immediately from starting the degree, not immediately in finance, but um, certainly after about a year. So, and one, it was a bit of a toll <laughs> working full time and studying. Uh, for quite a long time, I was trying to. I was studying full time and working full time. Well, hard work's nothing. Never been something you've avoided. Um. Yeah, but it, it, it was it was taxing. But it was more. I was like, you know, at that point, I was interviewing people for positions, and I was like, why am I doing a degree when it's not actually, you know, what I'm learning in the class? Absolutely zero impact on how I do my job, and I, I just thought it was useless. So I didn't ever finished that but I did go back because I, I just thought it was odd that it was something that was left incomplete something that you've devoted a fair bit of time to but you never finished so I did go back and um, do my masters so I did my masters in business um, and again to be honest with you really you didn't um, like flogging home loans to people um, no no I, mean, I liked banking I well think, you love real uh, estate for a start I, well, exactly so yeah getting Getting people to invest in real estate is as natural. Uh, but I went from that sort of personal banking uh, to um, so I managed a, a little branch. Um, and then I got uh, recruited to be at head office. So then I was doing more corporate stuff as opposed to, you know, dealing with individuals and their home loans. Um, so that was interesting. But, yeah, I got tired of it to be, after a period. It just... Um, and it was never something I wanted to do forever. It was always something that I intended to retire from fairly early. So we have a we have an Arkansas-born Iranian migrant comes to Australia, lives at the back of a chicken shop, goes to school, gets a degree, <laughs> sort of, but ends up in the media, which is an incredible U-turn. And I think I probably mm. first became aware of you when you were, I think, writing stuff in that giveaway paper that New Zealand had had MX, I think you did a – did you not do a column in that called Ripper Rita? Yeah, that was a um, – that was my very, very first. Uh, uh, did you cut I them all I, out? You got a scrapbook? Yeah. I hope so. I hope my mum kept a few because I love that. <laughs> they even had like a little cartoon of me, uh, which I've never had since. I've always, you know, I just had boring pictures on the byline. <laughs> I've never had a cartoon since my MX days, so I do hope there's some copy somewhere. But that was just great fun. But I was still in banking then, so it was, it was a hobby, and it was never something where it was, uh, there was a decision that I want to move into the media. It, it was all happened organically, um, and yeah, no one with a. Oh, I think there was rain. a bit of push and shove from you. It wasn't just organic. You you worked <laughs> very was, hard and lobbied very hard to get those jobs. I, did not lobby very hard at all. <laughs> uh, just about every single thing I've, I've done, I was asked to do, which is 
Um, when I talk about moving to the States, everyone's like, oh, yeah, there'll be great opportunities there. And I've never thought of that. I wouldn't even know where to start. I wouldn't want – I don't even have a sizzle reel. Um, moving there has got nothing to do with career aspirations. It would just be the experience of living there and, and, and seeing um, – uh, you know, if it's preferable to be here or just, you know, the, the experience is enriching. Um, but no, there was very little lobbying for me. That's absolute nonsense. And I don't know where that's got out. <laughs> Everything I've been asked to do, um, it, I've been asked. So even the size stuff, I think it was Chris, yeah, it was Chris Kenny who first approached me. Um, and I think he'd perhaps read my columns or even maybe even seen me. On, on Twitter, um, he used to be quite active on Twitter. He's given up the platform, though. Um, and he had a Friday night show back at that, that, that uh, um, stage, and he asked me to be a panellist on it. And and that's how I started um, with Sky. So, And actually, not before Sky, I was already doing Sunrise um, every now and then, not every week. I, so I, I became regular on Sunrise after a while, but... Um, and again, Sunrise, the producer there, saw something that I had put on social media and contacted me through social media and asked me to come on. Um, and that was my first appearance with, with Sunrise. So, yeah, it's never been me sort of, you know, putting sizzle reels together and sending them to all the producers going, come on, have a look at me. <laughs> well, let's, let's go back to Ripper Rita because I don't think you'd get away with writing that column these days in this world of political correctness because I think I, oh. I read that you you actually rated the AFL teams based on how good-looking their players were. Can you imagine trying to do that today? I think that was my first assignment. I may have proposed it. But, um, but yeah, the only bit of hustle that I did show to uh, was um, <laughs> writing a letter suggesting that, you know, there needs to be more interesting content in, in a particular area. Um, and, you know, the letter was just almost a joke. I uh, read, wrote it with a friend in a cafe and it was just outlandish stuff. Um, and surprisingly, they responded and, you know, invited me to do this thing on MX. And I think they only wanted like three, 400 words on yeah, rate each team according to how good-looking their players were. And I think I submitted about 1,600. I took the task seriously. I was very thorough in my examination of each list. Um, and uh, I reckon you could still get, I mean, you probably wouldn't get away with it because they're all such woke wankers these days. But um, that was just part of the fun. Remember they... Uh, well, football that- used to be fun. It's now a deadly serious business run by very much by people largely of the left and, it, and it, 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 it gets involved in arguments and debates about issues that it doesn't really need to get involved in. Um, absolutely, and it's very divisive. It's, it's, it's basically telling a significant portion of their supporter base gets stuffed. You're not welcome in this camp. You're not welcome in this family and that is just um, such a stupid way of, going about things and um, I think at some point it will start hurting them. There's a lot of footy fans who really dislike the AFL but love their footy and would never not support their team or watch a game, though they absolutely despise the virtue signalling and all the activism. And uh, but at some point it might have an impact. I don't think we're there yet, but you can only annoy people so many times before 
they tell you to go and get stuffed. <laughs> yes, I just wonder what the average football supporter thinks. They can't go to the games at the moment because of COVID, so they're watching it in huge numbers on television. I wonder what they think of this kneeling before a game that's happened in two rounds, and I wonder how long that's going to last for. I mean, I worry about the players who actually don't want to have do a it. bit more. Well, yeah, have a more in-depth knowledge of what this movement stands for, and say, wait a second. I don't want to defund the police. I'm not anti-capitalist. I'm not a Marxist because Black Lives Matter is a proudly Marxist group and you only have to listen to what their co-founders, their three co-founders say. They're honest about it. It's much of the media who haven't been honest in representing this group um, for what they actually are. And so if you, if you had actually a player say, no, I don't want to do this, of course they'd be bullied into doing it. I mean, how could they possibly not when everybody else is kneeling? Um, so they have created this really intolerant atmosphere where you have to submit. You just wonder internally at these football clubs what happens when the Indigenous players at these clubs uh, feel strongly, that's their personal belief and so they want to do it, but they've then coerced, I guess, all of the other players to join in as well. I don't know if it's that way. I don't reckon it's necessarily the Indigenous players leading it, as with most of these activist, it's quite often your very privileged uh, white kid who is most uh, most enthusiastic about this sort of act- activism. I don't, I don't think it's a colour thing. I think it's um, – and, and I know there's been a few players who are more outspoken than, than others, but I, I would challenge any of them to, to but, explain but, how they stand with a group who's – platform is just so extreme. It's not about Black Lives Matter. I mean, Black Lives Matter is a, a statement that anybody agrees with. And, and these groups are actually very clever in giving themselves names that nobody could possibly argue with. Of course, Black Lives Matter, but the Black Lives Matter movement, the actual group that you're taking in knee for, is a neo-Marxist group, and they're not shy about that. And, and the kneeling the, it, the kneeling thing began with that Colin Kaepernick not wanting to stand for the American National Anthem when playing NFL. What's that got to do with AFL? That's all right. And, and I, I think in the countries where racism is all but on life support, where there is no systematic racism and when, in fact, within the system we have all sorts of things we call positive discrimination to try to um, help people of colour succeed. Um, you know, and in Australia, we devote over $30 billion to to Indigenous services. We, we make pathways to, to entry into schools and universities easier for Indigenous applicants. We've got all sorts of financial programs exclusively for Indigenous Australians, all of that to help them succeed. So to try to paint that as some sort of systematic racism that's trying to decimate their population, which is, again, one of the, the, the nonsense that, uh, nonsensical things the activists say, um, it, it, it's fanciful. Yeah, but interestingly, I don't, unless I've missed it, not one AFL player has come out and said, I don't want to do that. Well, how could they? How could they possibly say that? I know in the US, people who have not supported um, some guy, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he said all lives matter, which is, I guess, a counterpoint to Black Lives Matter. And he had to resign 
um, he was a, um, a court announcer or something, and uh, a football coach had had to do this grovelling apology because he was pictured with a T-shirt from a conservative media outlet who'd been critical of Black Lives Matter. So just for wearing the T-shirt during some fishing trip, he had to issue a grovelling apology because the players were threatening to leave the, to leave his um, team. So the the atmosphere is so intolerant. So hostile uh, that you know any, any anyone who doesn't want to submit to the group thing is in real danger. So, so on Australia, on that issue of conservative values, when did you realise that you actually were a conservative? I mean, you used you were a member of Young Labor at one point, but mm-hmm. when did you realise that you had conservative views that you wanted to express strongly? Um, well, it was a gradual thing. It wasn't. Um, like a uh, aha moment, if you want to use that term, um, where you one singular issue shifts right. your your thinking. It was it was just more a gradual thing. Where I think when I was fairly young and unworldly, um, and you know had years of uh, public school indoctrination, um, I learned a, a certain way, and I thought you know the less were. Were more for equality. They were more for um, fairness and you know, those values that that are important to me. Um, and I think it was just only when I became an adult and and started seeing a bit more of how the world actually operates that no, though they pretend to be that, that's actually not who they are. Um, that's not uh, the experience of how they. Um, Conduct themselves. So, see, it was a gradual thing. It, it wasn't a, a, it wasn't uh, triggered by a particular issue or event. It, it was just opening your eyes and seeing the world. And what was that line Churchill had about you know, if you're not left when you're young, you don't have a heart. If you're not right when you're, I don't know, an adult, you don't have a brain. A brain. Um, yeah, I, I, I've, I've mangled that one, but that's a mangled quote. But we get the, <laughs> we get the meaning. I mean, you must send the left crazy. I mean, you're. You're a single mother, uh, a woman of colour, uh, and a mm-hmm. migrant who's a conservative. It's all a, th- a refugee, not just a migrant. Yeah, a exactly. Refugee. So you're all the Thinking things, all, all the things the left love, except you have a different <laughs> viewpoint uh, on well, what should true. make the world go round. And how they treat me proves that all their absolute nonsense about valuing diverse voices and valuing people of colour and lived experience and wanting to give a platform to women and to, to minorities and all because 99% of every, not more, of every racist, threatening, um, sexist nonsense that I've been receiving end of has come from people who are unapologetically left. That's, I'm surprised uh, they haven't got a fatwa out on you, given all the boxes you ticked <laughs> that they don't want ticked. Well, that's it. And they want us, when I say us, minorities, women, uh, anybody who they just presume is going to regurgitate their nonsense. They want us to behave like obedient pets. And when you actually think for yourself, when you go, no, wait a second, you don't speak for me. What you're actually proposing there is destructive for me and my family, wrapping myself in the cloak of victimhood actually doesn't help me. Then they are 
vicious, Steve, absolutely vicious in how they attack you and and the racial, sexual, you know, words that they use to um, degrade you. Um, and I've got very little tolerance for it. I mean, I just block anything. Do you think it would have been as successful if you had a more white bread background? Um, as in white bread, as in white skin? All of that. White if bread, were, as in... Yeah, if you were an uh, uh, Australian-born mum from the middle suburbs uh, who decided to start writing about conservative issues, do you think the media would have embraced you? Mm. I mean, it's your, it's your talent no, that gets you on air, but... And it's kept you on air, but in, uh, initially, do you think you were embraced because of that difference, or was that just accidental? Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, that's really a decision. That's a, a judgment for others to make. Um, I've never felt like that's been much of a factor. I mean, I started off radio, and um, you know, master started writing series columns, not <laughs> uh, the frivolous fun I was having on... on um, Ripping Reader. On, on Ripper Reader. Um, then, you know, nobody knew my background. Like, nobody knew I was a person of colour or refugee or, you know, um, single mum or anything like that. So um, I'm not sure that actually factored into anything. I don't think it worked against me. I don't think it worked for me. It was just something that was. Television, obviously, is a far more, um, you know, <laughs> visual media. It does shine a light on you a little bit. Yeah, so, that, I mean, there you, you can evidently see that um, my face is the sort of face that you typically see on programs, panel programs and news programs. So, uh, but again, I don't see, I've just never thought it's worked against me or worked for me. I just think it's, it's not been a massive factor um, and the only people who seem to be fixated on it are those who uh, want to attack me um, because I stray from the reservation because I dare not uh, <laughs> just be their useful uh, useful uh, regurgitator of nonsense yeah. which is who, what they expect. Who else in the media do you admire? Oh lots of people um Andrew Bolt, I think, has always been one who is brave, who, who will take on fights that just about nobody else has the guts to, to take on. And George Pell is um, example. Absolutely. And even when I haven't agreed with him, I, I, I've admired the, the fact that he's principled and he's courageous and he's... Um, yeah, it's got a spine, which is rare in this industry, I think. Um, so he comes immediately to mind. And, you know, the George Pell thing, you know, if there was any justice, he'd be getting every journalism award there is because uh, from day one, from that first conviction, he went through why this judgment wasn't sound. And even when the appeal was uh, knocked back and you know, it was everyone, again, was, you know, this guy is completely crazy. Um, he methodically went through the evidence and, and well, showed he actually why did he, the hard work and went to the cathedral and walked around and realised yeah, that by timeline. walking around, this couldn't have happened. Yeah, did the timeline, did the actual, the, the, what was 
submitted to the court, what was alleged, and actually, yeah, uh, <laughs> tested it. Um, and yet, you know, and, and uh, not that he would care, he would never, ever enter his work, I think, into a into, into any sort of award. But uh, if these awards are actually based on, on merit and, and the quality of the work, he'd be getting them, not the bloody activists who's, um, who are just basically getting a pat on the back from their like-minded colleagues. What about Peter um, Credlin? Yeah, I think she's fantastic. She's formidable and uh, just has a brilliant mind, sharp, sharp, um, and a really warm, lovely person. She's quite intimidating when you see her on the screen or even when you meet her because she's got the height and sort of beautiful mane of hair. <laughs> so, um, But once you get to know her, she's just a really lovely warm um, woman with an amazing talent in the kitchen. I don't know if you're aware, but she is uh, amazing at baking and, and the, like the, the, the... Better than me. I know you love your food and you've even won a um, cooking show, celebrity cooking show. <laughs> but um, I reckon her baking, like she can bake just the most spectacular cakes. Um, but yeah, I think it would be... Uh, Blind ball when it comes to savoury dishes. You're both very, very good. Um, and you on radio, of course, have been um, absolutely amazing. Um, uh, at first with AW is where I would have first heard you and, and then 2GB. And, um, and now you're in the world of podcasts, which is the future. It is the future and it's been fantastic having you with us. Thanks for talking to us on this edition. Talk soon. Thank you, Rita Panahi, one of the loudest voices in Australia, joins Sam Newman, Kerri-Ann Kennelly and Peter Hellier as guests on The Record, available where you get your podcasts.